Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Joshua chapter 24, we'll begin reading verse 14. And the word of the Lord declares, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether it is the gods of your fathers, the ones they served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me, in my house, we will serve the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. George Leonard Carey, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, In the Anglican Church once stated that Christianity is just one generation away from extinction. But is this true? Are we really one generation away from Christianity simply just becoming a movement recorded in American history? Are we just one generation away from Christianity being simply a folk religion that people really don't take seriously anymore? Or is this just simply an overstatement that's perpetuated by ministers to get people riled up and get them into church. The fact is many people, in fact, many people in this room would say, you know, after hearing a phrase like this, that, that that's exactly what this is. You're just being overdramatic. You're just trying to play on our emotions. You're just really overstating the case. Christianity is not any danger in America to fade away. You're just upset that culture is changing in ways you don't like. You're just upset that the world is changing in the ways that you don't agree with. And so because of that, you ministers and preachers have become fatalistic. And you're running around saying the sky is falling. And you've adopted this idea, this paradigm, that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Because the the truth is the world is changing. And you just don't like it. But really, is that what it is? Is this really an overstatement of what the facts are? To say that we're one generation away from Christian extinction. Well, let's not make decisions based on our feelings or our gut intuitions, but let's look at the data. According to Barna, which is a Christian research company, they did a study in 2016 titled The State of the Church. And they discovered that 75% of Americans profess to be Christians. That three quarters of Americans... Pop, uh, self-identify with a label Christian. And, and this seems to be encouraging. So this idea of the generation, of being a generation away of, of Christianity going extinct seems a bit overblown, right? Well, not so fast. Barna continues, because they don't stop with people who just say that they're Christians, because anybody can say that they're a Christian. Barna also measured how people actually practice their faith. In, in not in the most complicated sense, but the very most basic sense. And what they discovered is that 31% of Americans actually practice their faith. Now, we went from three, quarter, uh, three quarters of the population to one-third of the population. Right? Less than one-third of the American population actually practices their faith. You see, three-quarter, three-quarters of the population actually talk the talk, but only one-third actually walk the walk, so to speak. But Barna doesn't stop there. 
Because anyone can say that they're a Christian and anyone can do religious activities. Anyone can go to church and attend Bible studies and feed hungry people. Does that really make them authentically Christians? And as we've said over and over again, it's not what you do that saves you. It is it's what you believe. Right? Our faith in Christ is rooted in belief. And a belief is a set of orthodox foundational doctrines. Doctrines like the divinity of Christ and the virgin birth and the original sin of man and the Trinity and salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Christianity is made up of foundational, essential doctrines. One that must be believed to be saved. And out of these doctrines and out of our understanding of the Bible comes what we call a worldview. The Christian is to frame his or her life and the way the way they see the world through the biblical perspective. We are to look at the world and our lives and everything else in the world through the lens of the Bible. Right? And as Barnum says, he measured the worldview of Christians. What he discovered is that really only 17% of Americans actually have a biblical worldview. Only 17% of Americans actually live their lives within a biblical framework living through the lens of Scripture. Instead, most people have adopted worldviews that actually run counter to the Bible. In fact, 61% of Christians, not just Americans, but 61% of Christians agree with ideas rooted in new spirituality. Ideas like people all, all people pray to the same God or spirits. Or ideas that the purpose and meaning of existence is to become one with the universe, like pantheism. Or ideas where if you do good, you'll receive good. If you do bad, you'll, you'll receive bad. Ideas consistent with karma. 54% of Christians agree with ideas related to postmodernism, which is founded on the idea that there is no objective truth, that all truth is subjective. What's true for you isn't true for me. 36% of Christians agree with ideas related to Marxism, which is the idea that man is inherently good and he can perfect himself with a little help from the state. 29% of Christians agree with the idea uh, connected to secularism, which is based on the notion that the material world is really all there is, that there's nothing outside of it. Right? And, and because of this belief, right, that, that the only beliefs that really matter are the ones that you can actually scientifically test, and that the value of people don't come from God, it comes from what they can contribute to society. You see, most Americans are not practicing Christians. And many who claim to be Christians aren't even, don't even have a worldview that's based on what the Word of God actually has to say. So it would seem that maybe this isn't overblown. That maybe we're in more trouble than we thought. But the, but the news gets worse than that. The most devastating news, the news that should cause alarm bells to go off in every church and every Christian household, is the finding that Barna did when they, when, when they, they talked about the profet, those who profess to be atheists, those people who, who say that they are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no God, those who do not believe in God at all, that has, that has doubled in one generation. In one generation, the latest generation, which is called Generation Z, which is everyone born from 1999 to 2015. A generation that's not even full grown yet. You see... Every living generation to this point, except Generation Z, including millennials, including Gen Xers, which is my generation, baby boomers and elders, all of those generations have 
about a 6% population of atheists. About 6%. Which means about 6% of all the adults that exist in America right now, 6% of them are atheists. But 13%, 13% of this youngest generation of teens and preteens and barely adults are professing atheists. People who deny God exist. And this is an earth-shattering development. Because there has been consistency for four generations. The population for four generations of atheists has been about 6%. And it has not changed in, in four generations. But within less than 20 years, a whole new generation doubles that. And the worst part is this is the youngest generation. This is the generation that we're supposed to be able to reach. This is supposed to be the ones that we're supposed to have the most influence with. This is the one that we're supposed to be mentoring and talking to. This is the one that we're supposed to really be able to, to, um, to influence. But the rate has doubled. Brothers and sisters, the church in America is in trouble. Which means our beloved country is also in trouble. And for those Christians who say, well, I really don't care about what happens to our country. That's fine. You can believe that. But understand... If our nation's in trouble, so is your neighborhood, and so is your community. And if your community's in trouble, so is your family. Now, you might think, well, all right, that's really bad news. So how do we get here? How did this happen? Right? I mean, how did this sneak up on us? No one even really saw it coming. Well, the answer, actually, is it's a perfect storm. A perfect storm of historical events and consequences that have really all come together and converged at this point. Now, there's, there's a lot that we can't talk about, but there are four major factors that we, that we need to talk about. And it begins with the church. It begins with the church itself. You see, the middle, of the, the, last, the middle to the last half of the 20th century, the church was dominated by a philosophy known as the church growth movement. You see, for the American church, it was all about growth. It was all about numbers. It was about how many people can we pack into this place. And that philosophy of, of the church growth became about getting people into church regardless of what you had to do to get them there. And so, so church became more about your attendance rather than your discipleship. And it became about filling seats instead of biblical understanding. And don't get me wrong, I don't have anything in, at all against Big churches. There are a lot of big churches that do great things. The problem isn't church growth. The problem is what causes that church growth. You see, the church growth movement was fueled by a consumer mentality. Church became about your experience rather than solid biblical teachings. It became about preference rather than, than solid theology. It became about feel-good sermons rather than sound doctrine that you need to hear that can change your life. And as a result been left with a weakened, theologically anemic church, which has led to things like easy believism. Easy believism is this notion that, that nothing more is necessary for salvation than your intellectual acknowledgement of what God has done on the cross, accompanied by some verbal appeal to salvation. 
That the idea, that in essence, is all I need to do is say the sinner's prayer and I'm saved regardless of how I live my life. Regardless of whether or not I repent. Regardless of whether or not my heart actually changed. All I need to do is come forward to some altar call and I'm saved. That's easy believism, which has led to what is known as nominal Christianity. Nominal Christianity is Christianity in name only. Right? Like 75% of Americans claim to be Christians. Well, only 31% of them practice their faith. That's an example of nominal Christianity. Anyone can say that they're a Christian. Anyone can come forward to an altar call. Anyone can come forward to a crusade. Anyone can say the sinner's prayer. Not to, and I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying anyone can do that. Anyone can say that they're a Christian, but it doesn't mean that they're really converted. All throughout my childhood, I believed that I was a Christian. When I was five years old, my grandma had me say some prayer. I can't even remember what it was. And she's like, you're saved. I'm like, great, saved from what? I have no idea. But my whole young life, I had no idea about who Jesus was. I didn't know anything about salvation. I, like many other people, was a nominal Christian. And the church growth movement has led to the rise of that. And it's also led to the rise of the most pervasive, unchristian doctrine in the church, which is called moralistic therapeutic deism. And if you've been here for any length of time, you know that we've talked about that quite a bit over the last couple of years. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a mouthful to say, right? But it's defined as a belief system that's moralistic in nature, which means God wants me to be good and, be, and behave. It's therapeutic, which means that God wants to make my life better and wants me to be happy. And it's deistic in the sense that God really isn't involved in my life until I call upon him, like my cosmic butler. That is the most widespread belief in the Christian church today, especially amongst millennials and Generation Z. You see, the church growth movement's focus on numbers instead of spiritual maturity has created a weak church that itself has created millions of adults who claim to follow Christ, who live unchanged, self-centered lives, all in the name of Christ. Then you combine that with the philosophical assumptions of materialism, right? An assumption that much of our culture has embraced. Materialism, this notion that all that's real, right, and all that matters is the material world. And this has led to, to this intrinsic belief in just about everyone that life is about the accumulation of material things. That life and our identity and happiness are all about material possessions. It's about how much money do you have. It's about how many toys you have. It's about how your career's going. It's about the old saying, the one who dies with the most toys wins. And this philosophy has also influenced the so-called minimalists in our culture. People who, who are decluttering their lives so that, because they don't want to have so much stuff in the, in the name of, of being better stewards of the environment. And that, you know, they might have less stuff, but they're still materialists. And you can tell that by their $800 mobile phone, that $9 cup of coffee, and that $50,000 eco-friendly car. Materialism is a pervasive philosophy that affects everyone, at least on some level. And then you combine that with a growing trend of people adopting anti-authoritarian attitudes. You don't have to look very far to see that there's a growing resistance toward authority structures in our country, which is completely unbiblical. More and more of younger generations, and even some of the older ones, do not respect the authority of anybody. Not law enforcement, 
People don't respect the authority of educators. They don't respect the authority of elders in their own family. They don't respect the authority, certainly, of, of the ministers in their local church. They don't have, respect any kind of authority. That's why we see so much blatant disrespect and so much disdain and disregard for other people. That's why we see so much bitterness and violence. That's why so many people feel and believe that they're above the law. There's a rise in anti-authoritarian attitudes. And it's shaping this next generation along with the fallout of the church growth movement and materialism. And, and we're not going to fully understand, even in this moment, the implications of that. But understand, nothing, nothing is changing this new generation like life in the digital age. There's something that we really need to understand. Life in the digital age is changing things greater than you can possibly imagine. This new generation was born into and is growing up in a vastly different world than every other generation before it. I mean, this generation has not known anything except the digital generation. And what we need to understand that that the world that they're in, the world that they've inherited, is not your old world combined with technology. It is a brand new world, different in epic proportions. Even you have been changed by your technology. And the implications of this have not been fully explored or realized yet. And in fact, they probably won't be fully understood for another generation or so. But what we do know is this digital world has changed really literally everything. It's changed relationships. I think you've all experienced that to some degree. We are more connected than ever to more people than ever, but we spend less time in real life with people that are important. We spend more time on screens with people than we spend face-to-face with people. And the negative effects are just beginning to be explored. But what, do we, what we do know is that this digital age is, is affecting people in just about every facet of their lives. It's affecting them physically. This digital age is, is changing people's physical habits. It's changing people mentally. It's changing the way they think. Actually, there's differences in their brains on brain scans. It's changing people emotionally. It's changing people also spiritually. In fact, the digital age for many people is defining their theology rather than their theology or their understanding of God defining their life in the digital age. People's lives And what they believe are rapidly being shaped and transformed by YouTube and social media and blogs and websites rather than a person's faith and theology shaping how a person uses those tools. The digital world has changed everything into staggering proportions. And I cannot overstate that. And it has changed things in ways that we might not understand for decades And this combined with the church growth movement and materialism and this anti-authoritarian attitude, so many people, right, have this, 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 all these things combined have created a perfect storm for this particular generation that's growing up. And the results are staggering. The result is a church standing closer to the precipice than anyone might have ever imagined. Because not only is atheism on the rise, in this new generation. But even our government itself is taking legislative action to begin to strip away religious liberties and protections that we enjoy in this country. You see, not only are people being sued for exercising their faith 
faith in business. And not only are legislatures trying to force Christian churches and, and universities and, and Christian organizations to violate their consciences by attempting to make them comply with immoral laws. And not only is, is the educational system working to indoctrinate your children into this new ideology, right now California, the assembly, has passed a bill. It is labeled AB 2943. And this is a bill that has already made its way through the assembly. It's passed. And now it is on its way to the Senate. And they expect for it to pass. And when it passes, the governor has promised to sign it. And this is a big deal for Christians. Because this bill is disguised as a consumer fraud protection bill. But in essence, it's simply a bill to say, shut your mouth. Especially you people of faith. Because the premise of this bill is that if a person is struggling... And the operative idea is struggling with unwanted same-sex attractions or if a person's struggling with a gender dysphoria, something they don't want, under the bill, they will not be able to purchase any book or receive any paid counseling services that encourages them and tells them that they can overcome these feelings, that they will not be able to seek right, those services. The legislature is seeking to ban all books and all services in California that say that a person can get help. Now, do you know what book that tells people they can have victory in their life over these things? The Bible does. The Bible is a book that tells people they can have victory over these things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul addresses these very same issues, and then he says, and such were some of you and such were past tense some of you you were like that and no longer like that but you were washed and sanctified and you were justified in the name of the lord jesus and by the spirit of our god the bible proclaims that a person can be healed of these feelings and desires these unwanted ones which puts it in conflict with this bill now you might say well wait a minute sherman they're not going to be able to ban the bible you really believe that. Now, I do agree that this will go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will probably fight it out, and guess what? They'll probably strike this down. But they're not done. The totalitarians in our government and in education and in universities are not going to give up. They just won't. They haven't. Every issue that we're facing now were issues that they were talking about 20 years ago, and they just kept pressing and pressing and pressing. Right? Given this fact and the fact that the next generation has already doubled the rate of atheism, and soon they will be in a position to now also vote and accelerate the rate of change, you can see that the darkness is drawing nearer. The perfect storm has brought us closer to the edge in the United States. Closer than anyone could ever imagine. So what do we do? We do. It seems like a really, really big problem. And it is. It's a monumental problem. This is, this is probably one of the greatest challenges in the American church. We're staring down the tracks at an oncoming reality that most people are not prepared for. We're, we're talking about the fact that soon one day the government will be involved and try to dictate what was taught from this pulpit right here. And I'm not just talking about sexual immorality. I'm talking about things that just offend people. I'm talking about people who have a perceived oppression, 
like other religions. It will become illegal to say that Jesus is the only way to salvation because that will be considered hateful. Saying the Bible is the inerrant word of God will be a hate crime. In fact, there is a group called the Alliance for Defending Freedom. It is the, it is the leading Christian law firm. Right? It's the leading Christian law firm that takes up cases like abortion legislation, like family protection, Christian, uh, Christian rights. And this law firm has now been labeled by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a hate group because of their biblical principles. And now as a result, Amazon, the retailer, has dropped them from their list of charities that you can support through them. You see, these are not just words anymore. Actions are beginning to follow. The darkness is closer than you think. And it's just the beginning. And so, yes, this is a great challenge, a challenge that is overwhelming. So what do we do? Well, we need to turn to God. We need to turn to his word for guidance. And so turn with me again to Joshua chapter 24, and let's begin in verse 14, because there's something here for us. Now, before we actually get into the text, let me just kind of set this up for you, because I think it's important to understand where Joshua's coming from. See, Joshua was leading a nation that knew all about generational troubles. I mean, if you remember, Moses is his predecessor, and Moses led the nation of Israel out of captivity from the Egyptians, and God, through Moses, led his people all the way up to the edge of the promised land, a place where they could actually um, finally prosper and rest. And these people were first-hand witnesses, eyewitnesses of God's faithfulness. They saw the miracles that he worked to free them. They saw the work, the miracles that he worked to lead them, that he was visibly leading them on a, in a pillar of smoke and, a, and then a pillar of fire at nighttime. He, they, they witnessed his miracles to provide for them and to feed them and to, and to bring water where there was no water, to take care of them. And God had personally, through Moses, led them to the edge of the promised land. And Joshua was there when the Israelites lost their mind and refused to cross over the Jordan because of their fear, because they didn't trust God. They were afraid to take the land that God had given them. And Joshua begged the people not to spurn God's favor, but they refused to trust in God. And so God turned them away. And God said that this entire generation is going to perish. You're going to wander in the desert in the wilderness, and you will die out there, never to enter the promised land. And, and their children then would inherit the land, but they wouldn't. And so they had to turn around and live these wandering nomadic lives for 40 years until all of them except Joshua and Caleb had died in the desert. And so, so God finally brought them back to the promised land and Joshua was not going to let that happen again. So he leads them into the land. And, he, and as he did, he experienced great success in military victories, especially when he followed closely what God had to say. But he also experienced abject failure when he was trying to work his own program. But eventually jo Joshua, by the hand of God, successfully helped his people to take over this, this land to successfully subdue it. And once they were there and they were settled, he was ready then to live in peace. He'd done what he'd been called to do. But he knew how quickly the generation's heart could change and turn away from God. And so he, before he stepped down, before he, he released his leadership role to the nation of Israel, he offers them this challenge. And it says, Now therefore, 
Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers when they serve beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my, my house, we will serve the Lord. There are two things I want you to notice about this. First of all, Joshua issues this challenge to the Israelites because he knows their hearts are prone to wander. He doesn't want to give them a chance to kind of like just kind of become apathetic. He wants them to choose. He knows that in a short amount of time, men's hearts can change. And he's trying to get them to commit. One way or the other, he says, choose this day who you're going to follow. Make a commitment and stick with it. Now, obviously, he knows that most of them, by at this particular time, are going to choose to follow Yahweh, which is the God of Israel. I mean, he, he, God had delivered them into the promised land. He had driven out their enemies before them. And so the memory in, is in their heads and is still fresh in their minds and their hearts. And so, of course, they're going to say that. And I think that Joshua knew that they would say that. So he tells them, commit to it. Choose. Choose right now. Like, don't become fickle. Choose who you're going to follow. But I also believe that, that, that Joshua knows that some of these people will probably eventually turn away. He knows that they're going to turn to idolatry. But the second thing I want you to, to pay attention to here is that he doesn't threaten them. He doesn't say, if you turn your back on God, I'm coming back for you. You know how much trouble we get into when you, when you turn your back on God. If you turn your back on God, I'm coming back after you. He doesn't say, you know what? You start following God and you start leading your, your family and neighborhood away from God. I'm going to bring my army here and kill you. He, he doesn't do that. Now, he could have. He was the leader of the nation of Israel, and it was his obligation to protect the nation. So he would be justified to make a threat like that. But he doesn't do that. He just simply challenges them to commit. And then he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, Joshua really understands where his real power in the world is. The real power, his long-term power, was not in his ability to lead an entire nation to follow God. In fact, he really couldn't do that. He couldn't make these people follow God any more than Moses could. And Moses really had a lot of trouble with that same thing. So he knows the real leadership power was not in leading the nation. His real leadership power was leading his household. Notice what he says. You need to choose who you're going to follow. And it's like he's saying, I can't make you follow the Lord. So you just need to just choose. But as for me, and as for my household, as for my family, we will serve the Lord. And notice that he's really assertive here. He does not say, we will probably follow the Lord. We will try to serve the Lord. We will absolutely serve the Lord. He is convinced of it. You see, Joshua understood that even though he was endowed by God with a supernatural ability to be a national leader, and even though he was equipped to be a general in the army in battle, and even though that he spoke to the nation of Israel on the behalf of God with a prophetic voice, he knows that his greatest strength is not leading the Israelites. His greatest strength is leading his family. Because the greatest sphere of influence was his household. Jesus, Joshua knew 
that there's anything he could do to preserve his faith, if there's anything he could do to preserve the nation, it was going to begin not with his great speaking abilities, not with his great military might. It was going to begin with his own home, his own family. He was going to have to, to exercise his greatest leadership ability with the people he had the most influence with. The members of his community, his, his household. And that, my friends, that is the solution to, to the crisis that we're facing. That is the solution. If we're going to save this next generation, if we're going to preserve the Christian faith in the United States, we need to begin working in the sphere of our greatest influence, making disciples there. Making disciples at home. By making disciples in our families. By making disciples in our community. Yes, we need to go ahead and get involved in the work to spread the gospel around the world. That is absolutely important, but not at the expense of what we need to do here and now in our own sphere of influence. Your greatest ministry to people in your own family, which is what this series is all about. This series is all about getting into the fray and saving this next generation by making disciples in the circles of your greatest influence. That's what we're going to talk about the next six weeks what it's all about. It's about us coming together as a church, not to complain about the problem, not to wring our hands about the problem, but to actually get busy and do something about the problem. And what we're going to do is we're going to start at home. This series is probably one of the most important that we can take on as a church. This is something that's been in my heart for a very long time. It's something I've been thinking about and studying about and working on for over a year. It's something that I've been talking to members, leaders in our church for several months. This is a series I've prayed over and I've cried over. Church family, this is where the battle for our faith will be won or lost. Make no mistake about it. This is the battleground. Our homes, our church, our community is where the battle will be won or lost. And so I ask you, if at all possible, will you be here? the next six weeks because we're going to really tackle some big big subjects we're going to talk about our need to make disciples of our spouses of our children of our grandchildren and nieces and nephews and cousins and neighbor kids and if you're a kid or if you're a child you need to make disciples of your parents because even many adult children still have parents who don't know the lord we need to make disciples of your aunts and uncles and your immediate family and extended family we're going to talk about making disciples within the church and within our community We're going to talk about the fact that changing the world and saving this next generation doesn't begin out there. It begins up close in your marriage, in your family. Making disciples, making Christ followers there. And then extending out into the church and further into the community, which means the place that you work. That means the place where you go to school those places where you hang out, those places where you meet and gather with other people. That's the sphere of your greatest influence. That is how we will change the world. That is how we will save a generation. Because revival begins at home. But revival is not some nebulous thing that begins way out there. It begins at home. And so we're going to talk about marriage 
protecting it and defending it and fighting for it. And we're going to talk about raising kids, be they your own kids or your grandkids or your nieces or nephews or neighbor kids. We're going to talk about the authority structures that affect your life and the lives of your children. We're going to talk about technology. We're going to talk a lot about technology. We're going to talk about this digital world and how you can help your family live in the digital world to the glory of God. So we're going to cover a lot of really big subjects beginning next week. And you might think, well, this doesn't matter to me. I'm not a parent. You know, I'm, I'm not married. I'm, or I'm, you know, you know, I'm just a kid. Or, you know what, I'm just really old and tired. I understand where you're coming from. But what you need to know is there's something in every single one of these messages for everyone. And the reason for that is because the heart of this issue is a gospel issue. The heart of the problem, like all other problems in your life, all of the problems in the world around you are gospel issues. Every problem you face ultimately is a gospel issue. Your problems at work are gospel issues. Your problems at school, your problems in your marriage, your problems with the members of your community, your problems with your friends, your problems with your own sin are all gospel issues. And it's the same with this particular problem, which means the foundation of the solution to this problem ultimately is the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, what we need to just admit and come face to face with is we do not have the power on our own to deal with this problem. I know you're smart, but you're not smart enough. You're not charismatic enough. You're not courageous enough. You're not organized enough. You're not powerful enough to deal with this on your own. None of us are. This is not something that we can do or win in our own power. This is going to require supernatural power. But where do we, where do we get supernatural power from? We get it from the gospel. Paul tells us, my, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible right here. Romans 1, chapter 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I'm going to say that again. I want you to hear what Paul's saying here. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for, because, for it, the gospel, is the power of God. The power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Paul is very clear here. He says the gospel is not just power. It's not just some generic power. It is supernatural power. It is the very power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God himself. You're not the power. The gospel is the power. The church is the power. The gospel is the power. And it's the power that we need. You see... We're not going to do all of this. We're not going to change the world with self-help books. We're not going to make this go away with TED Talks on YouTube. We're not going to change the motivational speeches. We're not going to do this by any human device. We're going, if we're going to save this next generation, we're going to have to do it with the power of the gospel. Because only the gospel is the real power that we have. And really, it's all we need. Because the gospel is the power of God himself for salvation. The gospel is the power to work miracles 
Because salvation's a miracle. You understand that? You were dead. And then God came and you became alive. It's a miracle. The gospel is the power to work miracles. And we're facing an impossible task. And so we need a miracle. Well, guess what? Nothing is impossible for God. And his miracle working power is available to use through all of us. And so the foundation, what you need to do to solve this problem is really, and really all other problems, is really to master the gospel. That's really the root. That's the foundation. If you want to become effective in your life for the gospel, if you want to change the world, if you want to see your family saved, then master the gospel. Which means we must learn the gospel. Now, we, if you've been here very long, you've heard the gospel. And many of you have heard it many times. But how many of you really, really have learned it? I know you can understand how it works when you hear it, but do you, have you really learned it? And you know how you really learn it? Or you know that you really learned it? It's because you know it. So we need to not just hear the gospel. We need to know it. We need to know it inside and out. We need to know it backwards and forwards. The gospel needs to become something we're familiar with. It needs to become something that's, that's a part of who we are. We need to really know the gospel, and then we need to rehearse it. You can't just like memorize this and just leave it sitting there like it's you know, just old news. We need to rehearse it. We need to be practicing it. We need to be able to walk through it. Remember that time with God that you're supposed to be having? It's a great time to get alone with God and rehearse the pieces of the gospel, preparing yourselves. Ultimately, what you need, and then we need to preach it. Now, I'm not saying that you need to stand up here and proclaim the gospel here. What I'm saying in your own sphere of influence, you need to be able to share the gospel with people. You need to be able to talk to people about the gospel. You need to be able to help them to see their problems in light of the gospel. You need to share it with your kids. You need to share it with your spouse. You need to share it with your cousins, your neighbors, and your grandchildren. You are the instrument that God has placed in their lives. You're the tool that he's wielding. And so you need to wield the power that he's given you, which means you need to be able to share the gospel with people. And then, just as importantly, is you need to be able to live it out. You need to be able to live the gospel. If there is one thing that will turn off the next generation that the old generation does is hypocrisy. You want to lose credibility with the next generation? Let them catch you in hypocrisy. It's not just good enough to share it. You've got to live it. Which means we need to authentically trust in Christ. If you're going to tell them to trust in Jesus, then you better be trusting in Jesus. And then if you're going to tell them to follow Jesus, then you need to be following where Jesus leads you. In humility and repentance and obedience. Or in other words, we need to walk in holiness. If we're going to make an impact in the lives of this next generation, if we're going to defend our faith against the hostile world around us, we need to preach and live the gospel. So what is the gospel? And again, I know that most of you have heard it, but do you really, really know it? That's so what I've done for you is I just put a little sheet in your bulletin that has a brief explanation of how I would explain the gospel. It has all the major components. Now understand, there, there are longer forms than this, and there are shorter forms than this. You know me, I can't always opt for the shorter form. I'm a Baptist preacher, okay? Can't help it. 
But in here, I just want you to know that like, I've given you something that you can read through to begin in your own life to learn the gospel. So the gospel begins with, with really good news, bad news, good news. Okay? So let's begin with the first good news. The first good news is that the all-powerful, eternal creator God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, and that includes the animals, the rocks, and people too. And everything was good. Everything was perfect. Everything was as it ought to be. But even better than that, God created mankind in his own image, which means we were people created with an, for an intimate, personal, up-close relationship with God. I don't know if you realize the mind-blowing implications that Adam and Eve actually walked in the presence of God. Right? They saw him face-to-face. No other humans have been able to do that. Not even Moses could see God. So that's the relationship we were created for, that kind of intimacy with God. But then the bad news is that Adam and Eve, the first humans, rebelled against God and sinned. And that intimate relationship with God was devastated. Sin and death entered the world. And that means for for all of us that we are sinners. Every single one of us. We are sinners by nature. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it's not something we had to learn. You don't ever have to teach your two-year-old to go bite someone in the face because they took their toy. We're born that way. As Paul says, we are by nature children of wrath. And because that we're sinners, then there are staggering consequences because of it. First of all, the wrath of God abides on all who are in sin. The wrath and the anger and the justice of God hangs over the head of every person you know that does not know Christ. It is their presence waiting to fall on them once they die and are judged. Second, our sin has created a separation from God. That we no longer can be in His presence anymore in this intimate relationship we were created for. But worse, when we die, we will experience that judgment and that justice. And then we will be separated from God's eternal life Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And the worst part is we're helpless. We cannot fix it on our own. Because as God says, our very best deeds are like filthy rags before Him. Our very best efforts are like trash before God. And it's not because our good deeds aren't good. It's just that our sin is that bad. It stains everything. And so we're helpless to make ourselves right with God. But then the good news God made a way for you to be saved. God loved you so much that he sent his own son to earth. That Jesus fully God and fully man came to the earth and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for you. And when he did that, your penalty of your sin was born in his flesh. And not only did he take away your sins, but then he gives you his righteousness. The righteousness that you need to have a relationship with. With God. And as a result of that, God's wrath then is satisfied. It's assuaged. It no longer has any hold over you anymore, which means we're no longer God's enemies. And His Holy Spirit comes in to live inside of us, giving us a hope and a strength for this life. But most importantly, we have a hope for eternity to forever live in the presence of God like we were created for originally. And then the resurrection of Jesus Christ is historic proof. That Jesus is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that he can do what he promised to do, save you from your sins. 
It is the visible evidence that we are all forgiven, those of us who trust in Christ. And it is by faith in Jesus alone and repentance that we receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. The gospel is just that. That's the gospel. Now, there are longer and shorter versions, like I said, that you can use to communicate the gospel. But, but, but the essential truth right, is that, that the truth that, that you need to know is the bad news of your sin and the good news that God rescued you. That's the truth that is foundational to everything that we do as parents, as spouses, as children, as neighbors, as community members, to rescue this next generation. And so it's our responsibility to learn it, to practice it, right, and to think about it, which, by the way, is your homework. I want you to take some time this week and get alone in that appointment with God you're supposed to be keeping and, and just really spend some time walking through the points of the gospel, learning it. Right? And you can take this sheet with you or you can find something that's a little simpler, a little bit easier. I've seen the gospel explained in four steps. But use it as an outline, as a study guide to begin in your own life to learn the gospel. So take it and study it. Take it and learn the gospel. What you need to understand is we need not to be sitting on the sidelines. I'm appealing to you to not be on the sidelines in this battle, in the coming darkness. This generation is changing very, very fast. And I want you to understand who we're talking about here. We're talking about the future here. We're talking about our kids. We're talking about our grandkids. We're talking about our potential great-grandkids. We're talking about people that you might not have even met before in your life that will be important to you. If you truly understand the stakes, which is eternity for people, I asked if you would join me this next six weeks to get involved so that together we can storm the gates of hell and grow to be a force to help rescue this generation, starting at home. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, this is a sobering truth, a sobering reminder. As Christians, Lord God, in our country, who never face persecution, who never really face death or torture or pain. It's really easy for us to just get comfortable with sticking the Christian label on our lives and just going about our business, not realizing that we are called, Lord God, to not sit on the sidelines. We are called to be involved. You said, Lord God, to go make disciples of all the nations. You said to love your neighbor as yourself. You said, let your light shine so that others would see and give glory to your Father. The Christian life isn't meant to just be just a set of platitudes that we learn and that we just sit around waiting for. That we actually are called to be involved. We are called to be a part of the rescue operation. And Lord, this next generation, my heart breaks because they're members of my own family that I know that don't know you yet. I pray, Lord God, that you'd rise up a people in all of us, Lord, that you give us a passion for the gospel, that you would give us a desire to know it backwards and forwards. You give us a desire to preach and proclaim Jesus in all contexts. Lord, that we would trust you sincerely 
and that we would walk as people that are made in your image, Lord God, and that you would use us, Lord God, to storm the gates of hell. I thank you, Lord God, for this congregation. I pray, Lord, that you would meet us all where we need to be met, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would bring to us a knowledge of the truth, and that you, Lord God, would touch the lives and the hearts of all those who need you today. Be with those who have lost so much. We thank you for that. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world. Thank you.